Today on the MCJ Capital Series, our guest is Jeff Johnson, Managing Director at Tomasic, where he leads the U.S.-based sustainable investing team. Tomasic was incorporated in 1974 and is an investment company headquartered in Singapore. Supported by 13 offices across nine countries, Tomasic owns about $382 billion or $287 billion U.S. portfolio as of March 31st, 2023, mainly in Singapore and the rest of Asia. We have a great discussion in this episode about what the charter of the sustainable investing team is, how Jeff found himself doing the work that he's doing today, what criteria they look for when they make investments, and of course, how their investments fit into the broader climate tech landscape and the energy transition overall. But before we start... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Liu. And I'm Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. And with that, Jeff Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. How are you? Okay. Yeah, we were just talking before we hit record, but there's a lot going on in the world, but the show must go on here. And yeah, really eager for this discussion. I think that we're on a few cap tables together, and I think Tomasic's name is coming up more and more in the ecosystem. And we've met several times, but I don't think we've ever just kind of done a deep dive on what you guys are up to, how you're thinking about the world. And what better way to do it than on your show? So fantastic. Yeah, exactly. So now I can ask you, actually, that's the interesting thing about a podcast too, is that although it's public, you end up learning a lot more publicly than you would privately one-on-one because privately one-on-one, we're more inclined to just jump to the business at hand. And it's like, tell me the history of Tomasic. That's not going to come up if we're in a 30-minute coffee meeting. But <laughs> at any rate, what is Tomasic? Maybe we'll just take it from the top. Tomasic is an investment management company headquartered in Singapore. You know, it's actually got a really interesting origin story. After Singapore became a independent country, you know, it had capacity building companies in the country, like the port and the airline and things like that. And it was decided that it would be better managed through a separate entity. And that was where Tomasic was created. And, you know, the beginning of the firm was really about growing and managing those Singapore-based businesses. Those were successful and grew and began to not be able to absorb all of the capital that was being returned. And so looked to then invest more broadly. And that portfolio has now grown to be you know, a little bit shy of 300 billion US dollars. So it's been a tremendous success. From what I can gather as a firm, it seems like investing and then working with the companies in the portfolio is the main activity. Is, is that the only activity or do you have internal operating lines of business as well? We have multiple engines, we call them. You know, we've got an investment engine, a development engine, a partnership engine. And so we, we work across a lot of different modes of operation in order to build out the portfolio. So we have our very large Tomasic portfolio companies, these you know, large businesses that we've had a long time in the portfolio and continue to work with those teams to make them successful, unlock value. I mean, management runs the company, but we are engaged with them. That would be things like Singapore Power, the Ports of Singapore, Singapore Airlines. But I found out not too long ago, we actually also own the zoo in Singapore. So it's a pretty broad set of businesses. Beyond that, we do have a funds investment business. We do have a kind of structured credit business. We have things we do in real estate. So it's pretty broad. In the core investment business, you know, we have a number of different verticals we cover in 
the U.S., the largest today are technology consumer, financial services, and life sciences. And I'm working hard to make what we call sustainable living, which is the theme we invest behind the fourth leg of the stool, if you will. And maybe just double click on that and give for me and for listeners a little more of a lay of the land in terms of a framework of the different lines of business at Tomasek and then where you sit and where sustainable living sits within the overall firm. We have developed a pretty broad ecosystem within Tomasek. And so, you know, we have done a lot of work to set up different kinds of investment platforms and teams and partnerships. I think as a firm, the philosophy is to find great partners to work with and really lean into those. So it would take really all day to break down all the different things that we have and do. But maybe I'll highlight a few relevant for the topic at hand regarding kind of climate and decarbonization. So one thing that we have done is we have set up a early stage emerging technologies team. You know, they're doing a lot of work to invest both in some funds and some direct investments, very much focused on the early end of taking technology risk where we can identify opportunities to kind of scale disruptive solutions. One example of things of how the company and the firm works together is, you know, that team along with a few others came together to work with uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures to help with the Select Their Growth Fund. So that's one kind of partnership that we have with an external party and with different teams within the firm. We set up alongside our partner, BlackRock, something called Decarbonization Partners, which is looking to do late venture, early growth kinds of investments. And so that was BlackRock and Tomasek leaning in and creating this new joint entity that was seeded with both of our capital and seeded with some of our great team members to then go and build up another business, done that. We set up a separate entity called Gen Zero, which is actually looking to explicitly take carbon risk and really manage that holistically as an asset class, really. So anytime we're going to look to do things where we're underwriting to carbon price or where a carbon value is a core element of the investment thesis, we've set up really Gen Zero to manage that. We work with HSBC to set up something called Pentagreen to help facilitate deployments of assets in Southeast Asia. So, you know, we've done a lot of things to set up dedicated platforms and partnerships with different partners and stakeholders. And we think about that's ways to amplify impact and really amplify our wider set of capabilities. And then what that does is for the team within the core investment engine of Tomasic, it lets us really focus on the areas that we think we can do best, which is really deploying later stage growth capital and all the way up through public markets and really looking to help facilitate real growth in companies and industries that are ready for it. Jeff, what's your purview across those areas? The team I have the privilege to lead is really focused on, again, sustainable living investment trend here in the Americas. And you know, what we've done with that is really looked to identify businesses and industries that we think are able from a unit economics perspective to deliver solutions that can displace legacy incumbent solutions and look for industries that are really ready to adopt those solutions. And it sounds really simple, but it's actually quite difficult. And having been in the climate space for a long time and having seen things stop and start and promising ideas not really go anywhere, getting that equation right is really hard. And so I think we spend a lot of time really trying to understand where technology maturities are, where market maturity is at, you know, where we're really going to see inflection points of growth and spend larger amounts of capital there because we think that's where we can earn the right returns. And you know, as a 
steward of someone else's capital. I mean, really trying to make sure that you are laser focused on finding opportunities where you can earn appropriate returns is important. We can earn the right to do more when we are showing we can deploy capital well and earn financial returns for doing so. Well, that's a great frame. And I have a ton of questions that I'm dying to ask to start getting underneath the surface of that frame. But I want to resist that temptation and first just ask you a bit about your journey that led you to doing the work you're doing and to Tomasek, especially given that you've worked in many different stages and types of businesses over your career. So I'd just be personally interested to hear how you got to Tomasek and what led you to believe this was the place where you could have maximum impact in this chapter. I've had definitely a nonlinear career. I think I've learned a lot as a result of it. I mean, I'm a mathematician engineer by training. My first job was at Intel building supply chain optimization software. And then I had the opportunity to go to MIT for graduate school. And I thought I was going to get my PhD and teach. That was my original plan. And then I blasted through most of my coursework, mostly in sort of electrical engineering kind of stuff, and realized that I wasn't sure I wanted to be professor and write. I really liked working on things and building things. So I wrote a master's thesis, got a master's degree, and took some time off and went back to Silicon Valley and worked on enterprise software startups. So I was the quant math nerd building models to work on pricing optimization in a few different contexts. And, you know, it was intellectually fun and interesting, but this is then 2007. And this question about like, how do you work on something that matters? How do you work on something that you're excited to get up and do every day? And trying to help large industrial companies make a little more money by pricing their products better. It wasn't doing it for me. (laughs) So I came out to the West Coast to work on the boldest, biggest problems like the world had. And what was that? And, and for me, you know, thinking about that and reading, et cetera, climate jumped out to me and you know, at that time that that was going to be the big thing. I mean, What general time frame was this? It was 2007 is when I was thinking about that. For me, it was this question of you have to really remake the entire global economy because the entire global economy is built on something that is kind of carbon pollution is fundamental to how it works. And so... I've always been an interdisciplinary systems thinker kind of person. So for me, what bigger problem to try to solve than that? So again, living out in Silicon Valley, said, okay, what's the boldest, craziest, biggest thing that I could try to get involved in? Looked around and talked to people and came across this company called Better Place that was trying to figure out how to disrupt the transportation industry and the energy industry and go really big as fast as possible. And i said, wow, it's either going to work well and be really big company, or it's going to really not work well, and I'll learn a lot. <laughs> either way, it's going to be a great way to get involved in the industry. So I was you know, one of the first couple dozen people at that company. And we could spend a whole podcast talking about that business. You know, Those that have been around are familiar with Better Place. It was one of the you know, big clean tech 1.0 businesses. For me, it represented an opportunity to get involved in the industry and take starting out as a quant nerd, started building financial models and talking to investors and talking to partners and had the opportunity to start to learn the business side of things. And so the great thing about a startup is you end up being able to be thrown into opportunities and roles and get to do things you might not on paper be qualified to do, but you know, you're know you given the opportunity to sink or swim. And so For me, it was a great opportunity to start to put together different kinds of financings, understand how to navigate a term sheet, how to navigate negotiations. You know, we were working on equity rounds and financing EV charge spots in Denmark in 2009 and 
thinking about how to set up a business in Australia and how to negotiate with car companies and electricity utilities. And it was just a fabulous place to learn and to grow and had a fabulous set of colleagues that we got to work with to do that. I also learned the challenges. I think and you bring, especially in the climate space, this mindset of maximum disruption, bring a software, move fast and break things mindset to an economy in a world that's not set up that way. There's bound to be challenges and friction. We certainly saw a lot of that. And you know, for me personally in the space, I kind of came to the conclusion that if I was going to be good at this, I really needed to understand how incumbents think and work. And you know, aside from my little bit of time at Intel early on, I didn't really know how big companies worked. And I thought that that connectivity between big companies and startups was going to be critical to scaling this climate industry. So I did perhaps what many people thought was slightly crazy, which is I joined a big European company and moved to Zurich. I had the opportunity to join ABB, which was a fantastic company. Great team. It was run by an American CEO at the time who was really focused on innovation and growth. And for me, it was a great opportunity to step in and contribute something, hopefully, and learn a lot. I moved my family to Zurich and had the chance to work to scale businesses across our power and automation portfolio. So couldn't have been a more different environment going from the slightly chaotic, or not slightly, quite chaotic, <laughs> better place startup to a company like ABB, you know, 140,000 people at the time, global operations. You started thinking about growth as, you know, whether it was how many basis points above GDP, which is a very different way to think about what business growth looks like. But for me, it was a fantastic opportunity to see how businesses like that worked. You had the opportunity to lean in and help my colleagues put together and scale some businesses we were doing in the EV bus space and EV charging and things we were doing around data centers. And you had the opportunity to work with our CTO to kind of overhaul the R&D organization to be more focused on business outcomes, so kind of large-scale change management. So it was fantastic. Learned a lot. But then we had a you know CEO transition and the priorities of the business changed and I decided it was time to come back, come back home to California. This is now 2014, 15. And Jason, that was not a good time for the climate space. You know, the clean tech 1.0 enthusiasm had met with some, you know, the challenges of the reality of things. A lot of the money had all gone away. I was really committed to the space. You know, I really wanted to continue to make this impact of the mission I feel like I signed up for when I first joined Better Place. You know, which is how do we really make this transition work? And so I ended up starting an advisory business kind of out of, got a few phone calls from different companies, different people to help out on things and started a business on that and ended up doing that for seven years. So I had the chance to work with lots of different folks. What types of projects and also what'd you learn about yourself over this period, just in terms of where your skills are best suited and also what gives you the most energy professionally? That time was a great time to figure that out, you know, because I ended up getting calls mostly from a lot of European corporates trying to figure out how to navigate what was coming, where were the technology trends going, how do we invest capital. So, you know, one part of the business was that, helping figure out how to set up some different investment arms and deploy capital and how to work with companies that think about M&A. But the other is I think I had this perspective that between startups and big companies and kind of how to work through that, that... You know, a lot of startups found valuable in different ways. So I had the privilege to work with a lot of different teams to help them strategically think through complex issues, especially at that time. How do you build a business plan that is even financeable? What kind of asks do you have of your corporate customers to help make it possible for investors to put money into the company? And so what I ended up getting the chance to do is kind of take this 
breadth of experience and put it to work with lots of different people and teams and organizations and found that that sort of problem solving, people ask sometimes, you know, what do you do? I solve problems. That's the job. And thinking about these different opportunities and thinking about how you really unlock scale and growth and having seen it not work and work across multiple different sectors and stages is really fun to think about what that ends up looking like. So, you know, you go into these different businesses and really understand the technology might work, but the business model could be wrong. Coming back to how we think about investing for the team I'm currently running, we talk a lot, I mentioned about unit economics and market inflections. One thing I hear a lot from people is to say, well, I can't get customers to agree to X or Y because the industry doesn't work that way. It's like, well, if the industry really wants what you have, they'll do things differently and you start to see that. And so getting to work with companies to say, okay, I know the industry doesn't work that way today. You know, People might not buy or make long-term offtake agreements or might not pay for this or that. But if you push, if you ask, if they really want what you have, they will. So working with teams to help figure out what the right kind of asks are and pushing those through is a lot of fun. I get lots of decks from people and I get asked a lot of times to give candid feedback, which I'm very pleased to do because I think a lot of people struggle to tell their story. And I'm not going to pretend to be, I'm an engineer, like I'm not going to pretend to be the best storyteller in the world, but I have learned a lot about how to tell stories. And I do think one thing people in the climate space need to continue to get better and better at is storytelling in a productive way. There's lots of inspirational stories, but we need to somehow channel that into something that's much more commercial and think about how we do that. That's stuff I really enjoy to do. When did you join Tomasek? What were you inheriting in terms of the sustainable living group? What did it look like at that time? And what was your charter coming in? (laughs) Well, I joined Tomas about coming up on two and a half years ago. It's interesting. I had been sort of running this advisory business and I got involved in lots of different things. And I had the opportunity to work with some teams to co-found some companies. I had the opportunities to work with different teams to turn companies around. I had a chance to do lots of things. But as the tide came back in on climate, always in my head was, is there a place that the experience I have, I can put to work in a broad sense to help do my part to scale this industry, to help companies that deserve the right to grow, to do that. And what I saw when I first engaged with Tomasic was just a depth of commitment. Our CEO talks a lot about, we're here to actually decarbonize the world and not the portfolio. You know, the spirit of that is very much, you don't fix things by selling off your hard assets. You know, you actually have to do the work to future-proof them. That level of depth and commitment from CEO and board, I think, was what gave me the interest and confidence to think that you've got a firm that is working at scale and really thinking about, again, solving problems in the way they needed to be solved. That was what really got me interested. So before we talk about you know what the group looked like at the time and what your charter was coming in, I just want to probe on something you just mentioned, which is that mindset from the CEO. Where did that come from? How did that come to be? I mean, it's what we need from more companies, and there's a real absence of it, although it's slowly changing. But yeah, why? The organization sort of, we're a long-term capital vehicle. What's really different in a lot of ways about Tomasic is it's not a fund. It's a permanent capital vehicle. We're really chartered to think about the long term. If you take a step back and really think about the long-term implications on business of the impacts of climate change, it's significant. And so as a long-term steward of capital, if you allow yourself to think that way, it becomes really an imperative that this is an issue you have to 
proactively manage and deal with. And so if you start there, if you start with kind of how we think about the capital that we are stewards of, this becomes an issue that you really do need to consider. And then the question is, okay, if this is important, then how do you put the various pieces in place to make sure that you can do it well? And that's where we've taken a very much of a portfolio approach from our investment side to think about how we do this and how do we want to think about exposure to earlier stage businesses and growth stage businesses and public markets and you know how do we think about working with different partners, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we also, like many other investment firms, think about how we embed this into everything that we do from our investment perspective. So we obviously have done a lot of work to embed these considerations in the whole investment process, you know, have put a carbon price on all of our deals, et cetera. So there's the, you know, how do you make this part of how you think on a day-to-day basis, which is very much what we're doing, but then how do we proactively think about making great investments that we think can meet these, primarily meet return objectives, which is the first priority, but do it in a way that works on solving this problem that if we can get right, we do believe there's the opportunity to earn great returns. I think the hard part about the job is to really think about where can you end up finding the appropriate returns? Because it's this is a space where if you go in too early, if you end up in areas that don't really have unit economics that are ready to go and don't really have an industrial customer base or partner base that's really ready to scale, things can languish for a long time. And things languishing for a long time really does a number on your returns. And so I think you have to be really disciplined to figure out where to go and why. So what were you brought in to do and what was the pitch for you to join? I came in at a time when the firm was really staffing up its team and capabilities to do this type of work. And so when I came in, we had lots of teams doing lots of things and lots of activity happening across the firm. And we were setting up new platforms. I mentioned some of those earlier. You know, the first part of getting in was just kind of getting your arms around what's going on and trying to understand what teams are doing and have the opportunity to listen and learn and meet people in a relatively large firm like Tomasic. I mean, really spending time to get to know your colleagues, to understand what people are trying to do and accomplish, understand how the place works. That was phase one. You know, after that, it really became about, okay, how do we make sure that we're as organized and aligned as we can be across these different teams and platforms and solutions? And how do we then figure out what we want to build here, especially in the US, which is where I am? You know, what business do we want to build and how do we start to kind of put the right people around that? And so, I mean, the first deal we got done, I mean, I think I was sort of borrowing people from different parts of the firm, just finding a way to find great opportunities and get them done. And then as we've shown that, we've started to be able to put a dedicated team together and you know, we're starting to continue to align you know, different parts of the firm behind a set of themes and activities that we want to go invest in. So I can't say that when I joined, it was, well, here's the mandate, go. It's a little bit more like you have networks, knowledge, and capabilities that we don't have enough of in the firm come in, figure it out, and then propose something, which I actually think is a strength of how Tomasic works. You've got a really smart set of folks who come together and hash out what is the right way to do this. And it's an action-orientated culture. And so the idea is to not sit around and see what comes or happens, but to go proactively figure out what you think ought to be done and then 
work to make sure people understand why you want to do that and are supportive of that and go. So when I joined, that was very much what the job was. It was to come and figure out what we were doing, figure out what we weren't doing, figure out how to align everyone around what we thought makes sense, and then make a proposal and push it forward. And what's the Cliff Notes version of what you've done, learned, and achieved over the last two and a half years? And then similarly, as you look forwards with the understanding that nothing's set in stone and it's an evolving world, an evolving firm, you're getting evolving learnings, et cetera, you know, what you see in the future in terms of the short, medium, and long term for your efforts within the firm? The way we started to think about what we wanted to do was to say, starting with where do we think we can have impact? Where do we think there's opportunities to deliver real decarbonization? So we started out by mapping out all these decarbonization pathways. What were all the ways we were going to possibly get there? Where do we think there's the most impact to have? And then starting from that, where can we identify the opportunity to earn the right returns? And so one thing we did early on as a team is said, let's not go down the path of saying, let's look for opportunities where we think we can make money. And then like, can we justify enough impact to make it work? You know, that wasn't the approach. It was to say, where do we think we can have go have big impact? And then can we find the returns there or not? And I think when you kind of start with that framing, you kind of end up in a potentially different solution set than you would if you just start with where do we think we can make the most money? I think in the end, you know, we're going to only invest in things where we have conviction we can achieve the appropriate risk-adjusted returns. But that starting point matters. So one example that we spent some time on was methane. So you think about methane, it's one of the highest leverage areas we have in terms of delivering kind of immediate GHG kind of impact. So spend some time looking, you know, at different opportunities in that space. Couldn't find anything yet that is going to get us what we're looking for from a risk return perspective. But again, that's an example of what we spent time on it because of what we thought the impact could really look like. We spent a lot of time on the energy storage and grid resilience space, for example, looked at what are the things that are going to prevent the continued rollout of renewables and energy storage You know, is clearly a big part of that. And so we started to think about, okay, where can we invest in companies around that theme and really look to scale up solutions. So we've done a number of things there. But that's kind of the philosophy. It's been, you know, where can we find impact? And then where do we find investable sector subsectors and ultimately companies within that and go? What do you look for from a risk return perspective? And similarly, what do you look for as it relates to impact and how do you measure? We segment the world into fairly finer grained views. So whether it's a growth investment or a more mature private investment or whether it's a public investment, you know, those all have sort of different return thresholds. I mean, I would say that in general, we're an equity investor. So we look for equity returns. We're unlikely to do project finance, sort of asset finance. Low teens is something that generally doesn't work for us. But you asked earlier about kind of short, medium, and long term, like what are we trying to go towards? I mean, I think that we really want to be able to do it at Tomasic. And what we're really working hard to achieve is significantly scaling our investments in this wider, we call it sustainable living space. The short-term goal is making sure that we do that well. And so I think we've been continuing to get ourselves better organized internally to be able to do that. We've been working hard to communicate what it is that we've been working on and all these different platforms and partnerships that we've set up and kind of bringing clarity to that so that everybody out there knows what we're doing, how we're doing it, and why we're doing it. And then if we think about medium to long term, I believe we have the opportunity to really 
help show that this is a space and this is a investment area that people can really do well and succeed in. So far, the jury's been out on that. If we look over the last 15 years, it's been challenging, to say the least. But if I look out in the next you know, five, 10 years, there's a lot of reasons for optimism. I think I get excited about great companies being started. We're bringing more and more you know, experienced entrepreneurs into this space who can really help scale up good businesses. We're bringing lots of younger folks in who are excited to build companies and build solutions. And ultimately, you've also got the wider world and kind of legacy companies out there, you know, incumbents who look and say, business as usual isn't going to work anymore. Now, how fast people are willing and wanting to change and you know, what their motivation is and whether their shareholders are ultimately supportive of that. I mean, it's all really difficult. We always have to temper the enthusiasm a little bit with the reality that this isn't going to be overnight or this isn't going to be, frankly, as fast as we probably need it to be. As a steward of capital, I think about that a lot. I think a lot about how do we make sure we don't misallocate risk and capital to things at the wrong stage at the wrong time? You know, there's a lot of focus, Jason, right now about people are talking about how do we think about is there capital to scale up businesses? You know, How do we finance first-of-a-kind facilities? How do we do this? How do we do that? And it's the right set of questions. There are some out there who argue that there's not enough capital and we need more. And it's not completely wrong, but when there's money to be made, capital finds its way to those ideas. And I think the industry and we all, if we can just focus on trying to help companies be better in terms of ready to scale, do they have the right customer relationships in place? Do they have the right EPC contracts or other people who are going to help them do that? I mean, I think that as a later stage growth investor, like I can't lean into a business and take a whole host of binary risk and not get appropriately compensated for that. So I think the challenge is, is as an industry is to continue to work hard to figure out how do we put the pieces together to make good ideas great companies. And that's a big difference, right? There's a lot of good ideas and even interesting technologies. It doesn't mean they're going to be a good company or a really scalable company. So I think getting really good at that is important. And just making sure that we're all rowing the boat together in terms of trying to address some of these scaling issues as early as possible will go a long way to help addressing some of these gaps. But asking investors to take... I had someone recently come and basically say, we don't want to raise money at the parent company level because we don't want to take the dilution. So we're going to raise money at a manufacturing company level and we'll uh, send cash back. It'll be great, but you know it's going to earn about 15% return. My question was, if everything doesn't work, that manufacturing co still goes under and still has binary risk. And so as a later stage investor, you know, you've essentially capped the upside. I still have all of the downside. It doesn't really work. It doesn't really make sense. So I do think we're kind of as an industry fighting through some of these issues and challenges. And I do think it's important that we all work together to figure out what makes sense. Hey, everyone. I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, 
Idea Jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. And how much of what you do is thesis-driven versus opportunistic? And what does that process look like, typically, if there is such a thing, in terms of getting something through to actually deploying capital? Anyone who says they're not opportunistic is kidding themselves sometimes. You know, like things come. I think the idea is, though, we do have a point of view kind of fundamentally on what we're looking for. So, I mean, I think that is critical, you know, so we kind of put everything through this lens of we really understand unit economics, really understand, you know, whether the market's inflecting and what it's going to take to get there. So over any sector, you know, that's kind of a core piece of what we're looking at and looking for. You know, after that, we've said, you know, there's a handful of industries that we think are ready to start to see that scaling. So we talked about energy storage and grid resilience is one area. You know, we've been spending a lot of time around mobility lately, spending time around sustainable and critical materials. So like we see some areas where we think those characteristics play and have been kind of very proactively looking and working on things in that we're looking at, given the passage of the IRA, you know, where there are places, given that policies in place that make sense to build off of, you know, whether it's certain select areas of bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., for example, So we think about that and then make sure we build understanding and knowledge and expertise and kind of invest around that. But I always very much like to be challenged and, you know, some of those opportunistic inbound things kind of reorientate your views on what's unit economics makes sense, what industries are really ready to scale. And so I think if you're not trying to be open to those things, revise our points of view as data allows for it. I mean, I think that there are areas I'd love to see work that I don't think are really ready to scale yet. That being said, you know, I'm very happy to hear from people and listen and learn to understand what and when might be time. How many investments have gotten across the line during your time so far? And what's the breakdown with direct versus fund? And also, how do you think about concentration versus diversification and pacing in general? And how has that changed relative to, say, 12 or 24 months ago? I don't know why I asked so many questions at once. (laughs) It's all good. Keep going, Jason. Keep going. (laughs) Across the firm, we've made a lot of investments in the space. My team's made a good number as well. I mean, primarily looking to do direct investments, but we've made fund investments. We've mentioned some of the platforms that we've created. We continue, we think of as part of that with BlackRock and DCAR Partners and what we did with HSBC and Pentagreen. And we were one of our early investors working with Brookfield on the Global Transition Fund. And that's been a fantastic partnership. So we've got a number of those types of relationships. And I think that if you look at a firm like ours and the the kind of quantum of capital that we're working with, kind of scaled relationships with large partners is one way to put capital, put a reasonable amount of capital to work efficiently. We have great partnerships with those different firms and work closely where we can. And that's been great. We also you know, identify where there are differentiated specialty teams to work with and funds, and we'll do that very selectively. But most of what we're doing is looking at making direct investments, and we're extraordinarily busy on that. But I think increasingly looking to find a little bit later stage business to do. I think for us, you know, being able to put you know, larger quantums of capital to work and really deliver scale matters. That's something we're going to be spending more and more time on. We don't 
get too much into you know exact numbers and how we think about portfolio construction in detail, I will say that we've got to be diversified, but you also have to, we work really hard to really understand the areas we're investing in, do the work to make sure that we really have conviction. I always laugh when I first joined the firm because I've worked with a lot of different organizations and investors, et cetera. You know, I'm used to a question list being a certain length. And I've gotten used to the fact that here at Tomasic, our question list will usually be about twice as long. <laughs> and I think it just kind of speaks to the mindset of, you know, we want to make sure we really understand things. We want to make sure we really are clear about what we're getting into. And then I think as an investment team, you know, we spend a lot of time making sure that we are asking the right questions, right? How do we really make sure we know what we need to know and prioritize learning the things we need to learn in order for us to make good decisions? You mentioned earlier that this is a permanent pool of capital and not a typical closed-end fund. Practically speaking, what are the implications of that in terms of really any facet of, of what you do for, in terms of how long you seek to hold, in terms of what types of risk you might take on or anything else I'm missing? Like, What's different about that? What's different in the end, both a lot and not a lot, right? So when we still, when we underwrite a deal, you have to be really disciplined to not just say, oh, because we're this long-term capital vehicle, we can just assume we can hold things for a long time, or you can't allow it to be an excuse for poor performance. If you let it happen, that mindset could creep in. And so we really work hard to make sure you're underwriting to appropriate hold periods, You know, really thinking about what exits can look like. But when you take a step back and think about how you design an investment thesis, how you think about what areas are interesting, we tend to avoid the momentum plays that are out there. Something that's building up really fast and you start to see movement really quickly. If we take this long-term kind of asset owner view, it's say, does this really make sense? When we had a lot of companies that were spacking themselves, I understand why, I understand the motivations, I understand what teams were doing and I don't begrudge them at all. I think they were doing, they were going to where capital was. But for us, we were trying to understand, are interests really aligned? Are these companies really set up long-term? Are we, like, is this really a good place for us to be? And kind of set that out. And I think, you know, you see things like that where there's a lot of short-term momentum. And I think that we tend to sit on our hands with things like that. You know, if you're motivated in order to put money out fast and show returns fast in order to get your carry check, that's going to motivate certain kinds of behaviors, which I understand. People are doing exactly what they're being incentivized to do. But I do think that's where, with the way our capital works, we're not incentivized to do that. And I think it allows us to make better long-term decisions. I mean, I know that if you even take a typical closed-end fund, whether it's venture or private equity, that it's pretty hard in the early years to know how you're doing or for externally to be judged, even in the period where you're out three or four years in and and raising your next vehicle. I mean, the J-curve, I'm learning, takes longer than that. <laughs> and so I guess my question is, how do you know how you're doing and measure performance internally? How are you measured with your activities? And how might that be similar or different than if it was a closed-end vehicle? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, at the end of the day, your job is to produce returns. The big question along the way, until you have cash back in, sometimes it's hard to know how you're doing. I mean, the beauty of the public markets, if you will, is I guess at the end of every trading session, you get a bit of a scorecard. <laughs> you know, you kind of know where you stand. You know, in the private markets, you don't have that. And look, you can also perhaps get overly excited about markups along the way. Some teams are really going to try to optimize for valuation at every single 
capital raise and try and show that. But sometimes that doesn't really work out. We really try to find how do you make sure you build syndicates with the right partners at fair prices that can continue to help companies scale and grow and leave room for ultimately what needs to happen in the end. So you know, the way we look to along the way understand where companies are at is being involved, understanding are they meeting their objectives that they've set along the way? Are they hitting key strategic targets? That's the best way to know where things are at and making sure you have clarity on what's actually going on is really important. You know, there's lots of examples where you know you can think things are great, not really understand what's happening, and then one day wake up and you've got problems. So how do you make sure you're really engaged with teams and working with your investor partners, et cetera, to really understand what's happening at companies and making sure you can be supportive of them along the way? I mean, obviously you have markups, that's great. But in the end, until the money comes back, it's hard to know. So try less to look at that and more to look at the underlying performance. You mentioned looking for the right partners versus just optimizing for valuation. And you might have been saying that from a founder perspective, but from your perspective as Tomasek, when you seek to evaluate potential investments, how do you play in the sandbox? You know, Do you compete? Do you collaborate? Do you try to lead? Are you very ownership focused? And when you think about the optimal syndicates, you know, does it vary widely on a case by case? Or do you have biases or criteria that you like to see in terms of who's to your left and to your right? My starting point is always what's best for the company. What is it they really need? And you know, we have a lot of flexibility in terms of what is the right kind of outcome for us. We can lead. We don't have to lead. I think for us, because of the nature of the firm, there's not an ego play here. You know, I think that sometimes in certain situations kind of drive people and take people over. And that's not how we are. We're an extraordinarily collaborative firm. Partnerships are a big part of how we think about doing things. You know, we really like to work with with others. And so I think ideally for us, being collaborative, frankly, inviting more people to the party is something that we tend to think of as a good thing. And you know, we kind of act and behave and work accordingly. I can't believe we're over 50 minutes in and I haven't asked you this yet, but I mean, when you say growth, like, is there a certain revenue run rate? Is there a certain check size or ownership target that you seek to hit? Like just from a core criteria so that founders listening can screen in or screen out on how to think about you for their rounds, what's a fit? We have different parts of the platform that do different things. And so I think that's where that is sometimes a harder question to answer because you know we have our early stage deep tech emerging technologies team that will take earlier stage risk. We have kind of an innovation team that does some things that are taking a little bit more venture risk. We have our DCARB partners, JV. We have our Gen Zero platform. You know, so we have lots of different pieces of the puzzle. I think broadly speaking, and then obviously the team that I'm running, like everyone, you know, we're looking for the kinds of opportunities that can really scale into the massive game-changing companies of tomorrow. If you really look critically, you know there are some companies who are going to be great companies and earn really good returns for their venture investors, but that the likely outcome is they get bought by a strategic. They're going to end up with a three, four, five hundred million dollar exit potentially. Those generally across our platforms probably aren't the right kind of businesses for us. I think there's an important piece of the innovation ecosystem, an important piece of the market for people to be funding. But, you know, we're really looking for really across the board, what can be kind of category defining platform type businesses that can really, if there's not like a credible path for something to being worth at least $10 billion, ideally a lot more, probably going to be hard for us to get involved. You haven't said this explicitly, but my sense just from this discussion and from 
other discussions and data points I've had is that maybe it's less about quantity and really about putting real some real wood behind any investment you get involved with where you're putting bigger checks in, getting more involved, but maybe doing fewer investments than some other firms. Is that a fair assessment? Probably fair. People ask, you know, do you revenue and this and that? I mean, we have made a number of investments into things as they were kind of getting started. We work with the team at H2 Green Steel, for example, to help put that together. I mean, that's just getting started, but you had offtake, you had credible technology, you had a good team. And so we were able to get as a firm kind of conviction to do that. You know, we just co-led an investment into Ascend Elements. Very clear relationships for offtake, really proven technology. You know, we can get comfortable with that. It's really about, can we look and see the substance that's there that gives us conviction that the risk return makes sense? I think that's where it's a lot different if you've got something that says, we've kind of tested the technology, but we have to finish our pilot, and we've got some interesting MOUs with customers, and we're hoping to get those closed. That's a really much more challenging situation to make a meaningful commitment to. And you know, those are the kinds of things we talked about earlier. What do we want to see companies be able to do? It's to be really laser focused and disciplined from stage to stage to stage on de-risking the technology, but also de-risking kind of customer adoption and market and doing those kind of in lockstep together to make sure you've got something that's financeable along the way. I mean, obviously revenue is great, EBITDA is even better, but if we can get conviction that you've got a great technology, we're not taking meaningful technology risk and you've got customers that we know are really going to be there, that's interesting. From a market standpoint, do these tend to be competitive rounds or are you tending to find and engage with them out of cycle? And do you have a preference? Again, comes back to what's best for the company and how do we be supportive of that. For good companies, there's always going to be some level of competition. But part of it is different firms have different things they look for or they've told their investors they're going to do or not do. And so Part of it is different firms perhaps putting in term sheets that optimize for different things. And so, you know, whether it's higher valuation but less capital and sort of not fully fund the opportunity and kind of kick fundraising down the road, we've seen some things like that. We tend to like to come in and say, if we're going to do something that's going to scale, like let's be really clear that we don't want to have lingering follow on financing risk. If I go back to the cleantech 1.0, situation. I mean, one thing that really caused a lot of problems to people is you raised enough money to move some things forward, but not enough money to hit a really big, meaningful milestone. And so then you're kind of stranded halfway through a project with not enough quite yet to show that you've hit something commercially or from a market adoption perspective, and you're kind of trying to pass the hat around at a really difficult time. Like those are things we don't really want to get involved in. We want to make sure that when we get involved in especially, you know, these larger scale opportunities that you're taking that type of risk off the table. We talked a little earlier about FOAC and the role of debt financing. How do you think about Tomasek's role as it relates to the debt side? Are you just a referrer and a collaborator or is there ever a more formal role for you to play there as an allocator? And similarly, since I asked questions in Twos for some of these rounds where <laughs> it really should be debt, but for whatever reason the debt isn't available. You know, what do you think about using equity for building out those early plants? Well, I love how FOAC has now become a term. That's like a new thing. The way you ask that, things that should be debt that aren't. I would push on that a little bit to say that if the conditions are in place for debt to be appropriate, that's out there. That capital would love to find ways to put money to work. It's just again, when you know 
what the criteria are to underwrite that, when you know what it is that they're looking for, you can try to start to optimize for that. And you know that's like really important. Relatively early stage companies could still get equipment financing if there's a known residual value on it. But if you're building a company using all custom stuff, you can't get that. So I think a lot of this is to say, understand where you are, understand the constraints of those potential sources of capital, and almost make that, if you can, as a design constraint to make it easier to finance the business. A lot of first-of-a-kind facilities still have binary risk in them. And if you have that level of binary risk, in general, the most appropriate financial instrument to put at that is equity. That just kind of is what it is. Now, is there ways to reduce the amount of equity you need and impact dilution and other things? Absolutely. You know, that's where what some of the good work coming from the DOE, for example, you know, we talked about equipment financing. There are ways to help reduce that burden. But one of the things I have to spend a lot of time thinking about and making sure we're not doing is mispricing risk. And, you know, if you're taking binary risk on a first of a kind facility, that's not debt. That's not the role of that type of capital. You know, you have to mature something to get there. And so we've demonstrated our interest in being able to invest equity into those kinds of opportunities and, you know, continue to have that interest. So for some of these areas where it requires tons and tons of capital with lots of bench level science risk and far before there's things like scaling revenues and unit economics. And I'll just give you one example, fusion. How do you think about those areas relative to your standard lens for evaluation? These are interesting questions and issues. How do you really scale up fusion? We have some interest in some companies in that space. We're excited about it, but it's going to be hard. It's going to take collaboration you know, of many stakeholders and who and how do people want to get involved and work and scale those businesses. I mean, if you look at other things, it's an interesting question. You can look at fusion, you can look at something like direct air capture. If you look at the IPCC reports, we all know that carbon removal has to be a part of the solution and we need that. But how far can really expensive removals go? Are we yet to the point where we have solutions that are going to be at scale cheap enough to be part of the real answer versus very small niche things while we're still out there looking for the really scalable solution that is the real answer. So the question for a lot of these businesses in some ways is, are we still in R&D mode and do we need to really be funding fundamental research in R&D or are we really ready to start to scale? And if we are, who are the different stakeholders that can take and have the right kind of risk and interest in what that looks like to really get there? And frankly, are there things along the way that you can do that can help be sources of revenue and opportunities that can help de-risk this. I mean, if I've learned anything in my time at Tomasic, given the breadth of what we do and all the different teams, it's kind of bringing a much greater lens to risk and thinking about risk, thinking about what parts of our platform should take what risk, thinking about what risk should we really not, not be taking. And I think kind of the spirit of the question there kind of gets back to exactly that is who should take what risk and where's the capital for that going to come from? Relatedly, it seems from my seat like the amount of companies that grow to the point where they clear the bar to be ready for the big capital injection from somebody like a Tomasek is still relatively few and far between in climate tech. I guess one, is that what you're seeing as well? Or what are you seeing? And two, if you do look at the farm system, if you will, 
what's missing or what could we do to either to move companies through faster or to help build a bridge so that more of them graduate quicker? We are at a time where the next handful of years, there's going to be you know, a phenomenal set of companies really reaching that real scale up growth phase and stage. And so I think about going back to 2014, 15, 16, when basically the only money for the space were some corporates and a handful of family offices. Like that was the bulk of the investment environment in that time frame. And you know, you had a need to catalyze the next phase of the industry. I give the Breakthrough Energy Ventures team a lot of credit for being an organization that kind of put a spotlight on this, said they were going to take some real risk in people and companies and teams, and they put together, you know, a great organization and really helped re-inspire the space. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of great follow-on effects to that. And I think you've got a lot of people around the industry now that are working to help support a lot of these companies. And so if I think about when that started happening and all of the businesses that have kind of started to come out from that work, you know, we're hitting scale for some of those as we speak. We're seeing lots of things. We're seeing lots of companies. You know, we've said it a couple times already, like the thing that sometimes we see is that the business model approach, the way to think about actually building the business end is where we tend to see some shortcomings more than where the technologies are at. And so if I think of there were one thing we as an industry can do, it's to continue to support these companies earlier on. And I wish I had more time to do this. It's one thing I love to do. I unfortunately don't have as much time to do it as I would like, but working with some of these earlier stage companies to really think about what's the right business model. I mean, I think everybody initially thinks, well, I just have to vertically integrate everything and that's what success looks like. And in a lot of these areas, that's not the case. So really thinking about you know, what value do you uniquely create? What business do you need to build? Because others either don't or can't. And just being really rigorous and disciplined about that, I think, would go a really long way. Again, how do you get the right partners involved? How do you get customers to actually commit to things? I mean, it's really hard, but those are the things that we need to do. And as companies figure that out, and as I'm seeing more and more of companies doing that, you know, it becomes a really attractive space for us and firms like us that can really help bring larger amounts of capital to companies and really help them scale up to global success. In terms of what would be valuable for you, Jeff, for anyone listening that is inspired by your work and where you sit in the ecosystem, what kinds of people might you want to hear from, if anyone? How can we be helpful to you? Look, I know there's a fantastic set of listeners to this, and I think you've done an awesome job of highlighting the space and challenging the opportunities of that. You kind of went on your own journey here and have listened and learned. And I've had the privilege of doing this for a long time and seen a lot of things not go well. You know, early on, a lot of ambition met with cold, hard reality. And I think we're now at a time where the future is going to be very different than it was in the past for this space. I think we've got a lot of motivated people. I think we've got to figure out how to work our way through a lot of these early challenges. I think we've figured out you know, how to de-risk technologies more efficiently. We've figured out you know, how to work with wider sets of stakeholders. So I think that's all great and interesting. And you know, I'm very keen to talk to and share what I've learned and listen to learn from others just in terms of how we really are going to disrupt and change this world we live in to have something that really long-term is sustainable. And that doesn't mean that we don't have solutions and technology and live in a 
vibrant, forward-looking society. I think that's all true. But you know, how do we do that in a way that recognizes the planetary boundaries and all the things we have to live with? But I don't think that necessarily has to mean moving backwards. How do we really innovate like heck to do great things? And I think anybody who's working on that, I'd love to talk to. I come across a lot of people who, I'll just give you some examples. They are a longtime generalist partner at, or longtime partner at a generalist PE shop, or a longtime partner at a generalist venture firm, or they are an institutional, you know, they're a big endowment or pension fund that's been allocating into generalist tech for a long time. And when they look at climate, they have a lot of anxiety and fear because they see the symptoms, they see the groundswell of activism and young people and pressure on employers from all sides and cost curves coming down and dollars flowing into the space and flood of talent. And they say, well, those are all good times. It really feels like if we don't do something here, we're going to miss the boat. But at the same time, where's the DPI? Who buys these companies? At what multiples? Like, gosh, there seems like the risk is mismatched. These things are so capital intensive. Like, isn't this early equity just going to get washed out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as someone that's been doing this for a long time, who's putting real capital to work in this space, what would you say to those people? And there's probably a lot of them that are listening right now. I get it. Everything you said is true. And yet we still have a huge number of people paying attention. Everybody sort of, if you just looked at the past, you wouldn't do this because it's been really hard. There have been easier ways to make money. If we look forward, right? I think this is always really hard. I mean, everybody wants to look backwards to try to understand what the world's going to look like. And we're dealing with an industry and with a, where when we look forward, we know that the status quo leads us to a not very good place. We know that we're trying to iterate and find solutions. And the will and the conviction to do that is continuing to get stronger. And so what I would say to those folks who are worried about it is go talk to people who have been doing this for a long time. I mean, I know, you know, I talked to some allocators and folks who say, well, you know, it's really hard because, you know, the folks who've been doing this a long time, their returns are only so-so and this and that. Again, if we look forward, those are the people who actually really understand the space, who really understand what works and what doesn't. And that learning, if we look forward, is going to be hugely valuable. And so, this space is, you got to understand a whole host of complexity. You know, you have to understand how bigger markets work. And we're trying to, again, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, we're talking about fundamentally shifting the foundation of our economy. When you get that right, you know, the opportunity to build long-term, durable, humongous businesses is absolutely there. But it is going to take some time and it's going to be done by people, frankly, who are in it, who have learned from that. So, you know, I would say go seek out the people who've been around this for a while and really listen to what they have to say. There's a lot of great venture funds out there of people who have been doing this and who have been a part of some of these spectacular failures and have learned a tremendous amount from that. And I think that perspective is extraordinarily valuable and worth doing the extra work and the underwrite to ultimately get there. Well, I thought that was my last question, but your answer leads me to one other question I want to sneak in, which is, because it's something that I wrestle with, which is, on the one hand, I totally agree with you that there's no substitute for the deep institutional knowledge and hard lessons and pattern recognition and subject matter expertise and et cetera, et cetera, that comes with experience. There's no, there's no substitute for experience. At the same time, with experience can come PTSD <laughs> and to a certain degree, 
you need some beginner mind and some kind of ignorant optimism. Otherwise, you wouldn't be stupid enough to even try. I mean, Google's an example, right? You know, another search engine, come on. Or Airbnb, like what, strangers are going to let people sleep in their house or things like that. So how do you think about that? And in some ways, do you worry that the institution, you know, that the experience can actually make you more risk averse and actually make you your own worst enemy when it comes to picking winners? It's a good question. I mean, I think that in the end, Ultimately, these solutions work and scale by embedding themselves in a much wider and deeper and frankly, somewhat risk-averse ecosystem. I think that that understanding is extraordinarily important and valuable. And then how you complement that with team members and other folks who bring some of what you just mentioned, Jason, obviously is super important. And I think part of that is looking at the ultimate decision makers and people and understanding who they are as investors and as human beings. I mean, I think about myself. I'm a massively intellectually curious person. I seek out differing opinions from mine to listen and to learn. And I think a big part of it is how do you make sure you're finding people with that type of approach and mindset? I mean, the person who thinks they are right on everything and know everything, that's a pretty dangerous person (laughs) because... There's a lot to learn and a lot to go wrong. I will say, though, that this industry, given the fact, you know, this isn't like software, it's very different. And so I think that making sure that you really understand the world in which you're innovating is really important. I remember when we were at Better Place, I mean, again, that could be a whole show, but like we had mostly software people that were trying to tell electricity, utilities and car companies how the world worked. And you know what? Didn't work in the end. I do think there's a level of making sure you have some level of knowledge and respect for the industry you're trying to disrupt. I remember when I started learning about how you thought about monetizing batteries for energy storage and the business model around that. In a day, I thought I was an expert. In a month, I realized I wasn't. And then in six months, I was really in the depths of trying to figure it out. And then you know, a year or two later, I actually started to sort of understand. That can happen a lot. And these are much more complex and challenging industries. That's the most important piece of that. Again, there's lots of good ideas, there's lots of interesting technologies, but that has to translate into a really good company. So making sure you don't kill off where there's good ideas too early, but ultimately making sure you're figuring out how to invest and scale companies and industries that are hard to scale in. Well, I love that as a place to end on. Is there anything I didn't ask that you wish I did or any parting words for listeners? Again, pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. And again, to everybody listening, just really, for those of you working on these problems, trust me, I know how hard it is and I really appreciate all the work and hope to get to work with many of you in the future. This is awesome, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jason. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.